As children, we're much more comfortable with constant repetition than we are when we get older. Kids will watch the same movie over and over again. I don't know if any movies are on your band list when you were on kids. We had to stop watching Wally after a while. I really like Wally, but man, you just you can only see Wally so many times. Kids like to have the same books read to them again and again, night after night. It's true with songs, too. I'm sure most of us can think of a time when our parents had to put a moratorium on 99 bottles of beer or the wheels on the bus or this is the song that never ends. You guys remember that one from the old Lamb Chop show? I remember it because we used to have Foggy Day Schedule and Lamb Chop was one of the shows that would be on when we were watching for Foggy Day Schedule. By the way, you can go on YouTube right now and watch a video that loops... The lamb chop singing, this is the song that never ends for 10 hours straight. And it has 3.2 million views so far, and that is not a joke. So join the masses in watching 10 hours of the song that never ends. COVID really has taken its toll, I guess, but... But our interest in and tolerance for repetition starts to fade over time. Sometimes we just tune it out, right? Like all those prescription drug ads that we see, when they start listing off those side effects, do we even listen anymore? Now we just tune out. Who cares? What? It's talking about how like your organs are all going to come outside your body. Who cares? Just I'm not even listening. Or when you're at an amusement park, right? Or on an airplane and they start going over the safety stuff. I know I think I've heard that once. I don't need to hear it again, right? We tune it out. Now, repetition has long been an issue of debate when it comes to worship styles in the church. One of the criticisms that has been around for decades is that many modern worship choruses are just too repetitive and therefore are not as legitimate, meaningful, or spiritual as, say, the densely worded hymns of old. Like most debates of that nature, it really does no good to make a sweeping generalization. There are good hymns and bad hymns. There are good worship choruses and bad worship choruses. Some of the worship offered in the Bible is very repetitive. Uh, The most pointed example is in Revelation chapter 4 where we see angelic beings constantly singing a three-line song over and over again, never stopping day or night, forever and ever. Pretty repetitive. Another example is set before us this morning. Psalm 136 is a unique and an important song, but it is very repetitive. 26 times the same line is repeated. Not only that, but a lot of Psalm 136 is actually just a repetition of what you find in Psalm 135. If you were to let your eyes graze up the page or up the screen, you'll see that. If, we co- if we're not careful, we might come across this lovely psalm and start to think of it as one of those disclaimers that we hear on the prescription commercials. Let's just get through that and on to something I can connect with. Well, let me get into the Proverbs here and get into something that I can relate to. But you know, God's Word contains no waste. There's no fat in the psalms. This song has been recorded and preserved and delivered for us because it is God's opinion that we need it. And there are some times when repetition is welcome and very necessary. I, for one, am glad that the Miranda rites are explained each time it is necessary, for example. Or think of chest compressions during CPR. There's no thought of getting annoyed at that repetition, right? There's no number that's too many in a situation like that. Well, in Psalm 136, there's something that God wants you and I to repeat to ourselves and to the world at large over and over again, that his faithful love endures forever. As the song is sung, we'll be taken from creation through history and on into eternity. But after each and every phrase, we're reminded again, his faithful love endures forever. 
Your translation may have the word loving kindness or mercy in place of love. The term being used there is the Hebrew word hesed. Hesed is a kind of personal, affectionate love that is covenantal in nature, scholars will tell you. It's not just about someone liking someone for a time or having a sort of friendliness toward another person. It is a love so deep and so active that it brings two parties into a living relationship with one another. A relationship full of promises and tenderness and kindness and interaction. It's a relationship, we're told, where a stronger person protects a weaker person. Not just out of duty or obligation, but out of a faithful generosity. That is a glimpse of how the Bible describes God's love for you. This devoted love of hesed is one of the most important terms and ideas in all the Old Testament. It is strong and gracious and everlasting and it is directed towards you. Psalm 136 is not only meant to proclaim the greatness of God, but also to remind us of the many aspects of God's love and to remind us that no matter what we are facing in life, God's love is still sure and is still in operation in our lives. The song opens by calling us to celebrate God's goodness. Verse 1, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His faithful love endures forever. In the worship services of Israel, it's believed that this song would be used this way. The priest would say the first half of each verse, and then either the Levitical choir or the congregation of Israel, or perhaps both, would then sing the refrain, His faithful love endures forever, back and forth. From the start, we are reminded that God is good. Uh, whether sung after a triumph or in the middle of an exile, Psalm 136, verse 1, remains the same. God is always good. God's goodness and his compassion, we're told, rests on all that he has made. Commentators often cite this quote of Charles Spurgeon, which really well puts God's goodness in perspective. Spurgeon says, He is good beyond all others. Indeed, he is alone good in the highest sense. He is the source of good, the good of all good, the sustainer of good, the perfecter of good, the rewarder of good. For this, he deserves the constant gratitude of his people. We're heading into Thanksgiving season. Maybe you have a tradition of going around the table and offering something you're thankful for. But what we're invited to do here when it says give thanks, it, it's more than that. It's more than just a simple thank you. It's not the Jimmy Fallon Tonight Show, thank you, God, for, you know, it's not like that. It's, it's more than that. To give thanks in verse 1 here means a specific gathering to sing together as God's people, actually. It means to worship with raised hands, scholars tell us. Have you ever wondered why people sometimes raise their hands while they're singing worship songs? It's a biblical activity. It's something that God's people have done for thousands of years because it's something that has been commanded. To give thanks in this sense means to make a public confession of the attributes and acts and power of God. And this is yet another reason that we want to highlight in this time uh, where we find ourselves of why it really is essential for the local church to come together and not just to gather but to sing together. Isn't it interesting that after coming after the church and saying you guys shouldn't gather together, what's the next thing they said? Well, if you were to gather together, you shouldn't sing. And yet, this is a required and necessary activity of the church. God commands it, and He deserves it. He deserves that we sing. He asks us to sing, to sing out a declaration, a public confession of His attributes and His acts of power. 
How could we not respond in thankful praise knowing how good he is? Imagine you leave here this morning and you are on your way uh, to the parking lot and you're hit by a car. And a stranger comes up, keeps you alive through CPR, tends to your wounds, pays your medical bills and all your other bills until you're well, then writes you a check for a million dollars. Imagine that. Would you refuse to thank such a person? Would you just walk away and maybe give them a a solemn nod? Mm -hmm. Of course not. That hypothetical isn't even close to what God has done in saving us from our sin and bringing us into his family. From freeing us from the bondage to sin. From freeing us from an eternal damnation in hell. He didn't have to do any of that. He did so because he loves us. And of course, we should thank him and worship him and lift high the name of Jesus. The question is, have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? This verse says, hey, the Lord is good and so give him thanks. Maybe if you're not a Christian, you're thinking, I don't know God to be good. If God is good, then why does this happen? Well, we have answers for that, theological answers. But the Bible says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Well, how do we do that? You do so by trusting in Him. Those passages go on to say, if you have not taken refuge in the salvation of Jesus Christ, then you don't know about God's goodness. Not really. But He is ready to receive you today if you, by faith, will turn from your sin and believe in Him. After a call to celebrate, we're shown some of God's character. Verse 2, give thanks to the God of gods. His faithful love endures forever. When comparing the God of the Bible to the gods of all other cultures and religions of human history, we have a lot to be thankful for. Those gods are in competition with one another, right? Those gods can be so easily corrupted or bought off. They are impatient and cruel. They make sport of human beings. They're unfair. Not so our God, the one true God. He has no rival in strength, no rival in generosity. There is no worry that he might ever be supplanted or defeated or incapacitated in some way. No new contender will ever arise to take his place or challenge his authority. Verse 3, give thanks to the Lord of lords. His faithful love endures forever. Not only is God God, he is also Lord, meaning that he is the ruler of all things. He is the master. He decides and it is done. And his decisions for the world flow from his unending love for human beings. If you are a Christian, that means that God has bought you back from the devil who was your master. You were enslaved to sin and the devil was your master. The Lord paid with his own blood so that we could be bought back and put into his house. And now this good and loving master gives you freedom in the spirit if you're a Christian. He's brought us into his own household where we are able to share in our Lord's joy. In him there's no reason to fear. In him there's no condemnation. Instead the Psalms say that goodness and mercy follow us all the days of our lives. And we will live in the house of the Lord forever. Most of you have had both good bosses and bad bosses I'm guessing. Think of how much that matters in the day to day life. Think of, of, of just the, the strain and the stress of having a really bad boss. Or if you had a really good boss and then moved to one that wasn't so good, it makes a big difference. Think of uh, now considering on a far greater level that Satan was your master. He was the one 
you know, who held you captive. His purpose for you was to kill, steal, and destroy, to ruin you in every way. And now if you're a Christian in Christ, we have a master who emptied himself, took the form of a servant, and died a horrible death on a cross so that we might have a chance to be saved from that ruin. And so we have so much to be thankful for. From God's character, the psalm now turns to consider his acts in creation. Verse 4. He alone does great wonders. His faithful love endures forever. He made the heavens skillfully. His faithful love endures forever. He spread the land on the waters. His faithful love endures forever. Often when we think of God's wonders, we jump immediately to the miraculous signs recorded in the Bible. But in view here are the fantastic marvels of creation. Look in any direction. Use a telescope or use a microscope. Either way, see what God has done. In the book of Job, we're told that the Lord hangs the earth on nothing. Colossians 1 tells us that he holds all of creation together. Sometimes you hear people talk about atomic glue, and they're wondering, how is it possible that these atoms are being held together? Not, you know, the universe isn't flying apart. Well, the Bible tells us that God is holding creation together. Did you know that scientists estimate that there are more atoms in a single drop of water than there are stars in the entire universe? And that they estimate that there is one sextillion stars in the universe. They say, if you take a a microscope and keep going down, 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 down into a drop of water... More, more atoms in that one drop than stars in all the universe. We can't even fathom numbers like that or, and understandings like that. And yet, the more we look, the more amazing we see God's creation is. Now, the universe God created is not just large. It's skillfully made, we're told. It's meticulously fine-tuned. And it's fine-tuned for one purpose, to sustain life so that he might place human beings on planet earth and show them his love. And so that everywhere they look, they can see a testimony of his power and grace. From the land on which you stand on and that we find ourselves right now, all the way up to the rotation of the earth. It all declares God's glory, but it's meant to be a stage on which you can live so that you might know God and be a recipient of his love. None of God's creative work is slipshod or haphazard. Not the planets, not the mountains, not your life. And he keeps all of creation in balance in order to accomplish his purposes in your life. He, we are told, works all things together for the good for those who are called, according to Christ Jesus. Verse 7 says this, He made the great lights. His faithful love endures forever. The sun to rule by day. His faithful love endures forever. The moon and stars to rule by night. His faithful love endures forever. I don't find myself often being that thankful for the sun. uh, Especially not in the valley summers. But think of what God has provided for us. Way out there 93 million miles away. That little bright star that brings us light and warmth and causes the plants to grow and gives us vitamins we need for bone strength and those sorts of things. It boosts our serotonin. It reduces our stress. It does all of these things. As scientists keep studying what sun and the sunlight does, uh, there's so many benefits. If I take the sun for granted, I'm even more thoughtless of the moon. At the breakfast table the other day, a week or so ago, we got into a discussion with the kids about what would happen if we had no moon. And I thought, I bet someone could tell us. And the truth is, there is some research into this question. First of all, without electricity or fire, the night would be so dark, you wouldn't be able to see your own hand in front of your face. Because the moon provides so much light. 
The earth would, uh, the spin of our earth, the rotation would be much, much faster. Our days, they estimate, would be only between 6 and 12 hours every single day. And the tilt of the earth would start to become unstable. And the earth would kind of spin and roll around in weird ways, eventually leading to either no seasons at all or extreme seasons that would threaten life as we know it. Our God has been amazingly generous in his meticulous design. And why did he do it? He did it to show you his love so that you could look in any direction and see that there is a God and that he must have a purpose for your life. That's what David, uh, David's conclusion was as he looked up at the stars and thought and realized, what is man that you are mindful of him? And, and how could this God who has this much power, who can hold this universe together and at the palm of his hand and hang the earth on nothing, and yet he says, but it's your name that I know. I looked, I looked from before the foundation of the earth through human history and I saw you. And I, I knit you together in your mother's womb so that you could know me and love me and I could lavish my uh, generous grace into your life. The psalm now turns from creation to conquest in verses 10 through 22. Verse 10, he struck the firstborn of the Egyptians. His faithful love endures forever. He brought Israel out from among them. His faithful love endures forever. With a strong hand and an outstretched arm, his faithful love endures forever. How can these judgments possibly show God's loving mercy? In fact, the story of the Exodus does show many important aspects of God's love. First of all, that he is mindful of the suffering of his people. If you're suffering today, God knows and he is mindful. He knows every single thing that every single one of us is going through. And he will do whatever is necessary to rescue us from our foes one way or another. Second, though his love is everlasting, he is not blind to sin and injustice. He will judge those who refuse to acknowledge him and receive his compassionate mercy. Because the wages of sin is death, both for nations and for individuals. And all along the way, God repeatedly, in the story of the Exodus, repeatedly God gave Pharaoh chance after chance to do what was right. To the level that the people of Egypt finally came to Pharaoh and they said, Don't you see what's happening? Let these people go. There's not going to be anything left. And so again and again, time after time, God gave Pharaoh and Egypt a chance to do what was right. And in the end, many Egyptians did leave with the Israelites and were received with welcome. They were brought into the family, as it were. This example of the Exodus demonstrates that God will never force his powerful, everlasting love on anyone. You must choose whether you will accept it or reject it. It's a choice between life and death. It's not just a choice between, well, I want, do I want to have a relationship with God or not? That is a choice, but this is the choice between life and death. Do you want to be Pharaoh or do you want to be one of the Israelites? Verse 13, he divided the Red Sea. His faithful love endures forever. And led Israel through. His faithful love endures forever. But hurled Pharaoh and his army into the Red Sea. His faithful love endures forever. We talked about the meticulously fine-tuned nature of God's creation. Everything works as it ought. But throughout the Bible, we also see that it still gives way to his command, right? When God comes along and says to the Red Sea, part, it does so. The wind and the waves still obey him. And that's important because one of the most natural things in all of creation is death, right? That is a sure for every living creature in all the uh, world. 
Death is one of the most natural things of all. And yet, God's creation still gives way to him. And so one day, God is going to say to you, if you die before the rapture, he's going to say, rise. And your body will rise again, and the grave will yield to him, and we will be forever with our Lord. Verse 16, he led his people in the wilderness. His faithful love endures forever. He struck down great kings. His faithful love endures forever. And slaughtered famous kings. His faithful love endures forever. Sihon, king of the Amorites. His faithful love endures forever. And Og, king of Bashan. His faithful love endures forever. One of the greatest marvels of God's love is that he remains faithful even when we do not. Those wilderness years in the Exodus were marked by what? Everybody doing what was right all the time? No, not even a little bit. Uh, They were marked by complaining and rebellion and disobedience and disbelief. And yet God endured with them. He is long-suffering indeed. You know, we have our own share of shortcomings and missteps and doubts and failures. God will not cast us off. His love for you does not ebb. It's always at high tide. Should we sin that grace would abound? God forbid, Paul said. Because this is a living love relationship with someone who gave all so that he could uh, make us his own. But just because we make a mistake or fall short of what we should do, God doesn't say, all right, that's enough. Enough is enough. Let's scour these guys out of the pan and start again. Not at all. Something else to consider from this recounting of Israeli history. They had been delivered from bondage in Egypt. What an amazing thing. More than that, the world's greatest military power was conquered by God. Pharaoh and his army. That's an astounding thing. But then what happens? You know what? There's always another enemy in the history of Israel. Always another king coming in opposition, standing in their way, coming against the Lord. Maybe from the Amorites, maybe from Bashan. Luckily, God is enough to bring us through time and time again. Now listen, we are headed into an election this week. The world out there wants you to be afraid, one way or another. Depending on what channel you're watching, and we all probably should watch the channels a little bit less. But depending on what channel you're watching, you should be afraid, be very afraid. If this person wins, if that person wins, you should be shaking in your boots, is what they want you to think. And the truth is, that's not how we are supposed to live as Christians. As Christians, we don't hang our hopes on the outcome of one battle, do we? We don't. Even if Pharaoh is overthrown, there's still another fight coming. Still an Og, still a Sihon, still Philistines, still Babylonians, still Amalekites, still Pharisees and Sadducees. All kinds of lists going on and on and on. If it's not Nebuchadnezzar, it's Nero. If it's not Nero, it's somebody else. We don't hang our hope on the outcome of some battle in front of us. There's always another ahead anyway. Instead, all our hope is in our Lord and His perfect love. He is our refuge. He's the shepherd. And we can trust wherever He leads us. Verse 21, And gave their land as an inheritance. His faithful love endures forever. An inheritance to Israel, His servant. His faithful love endures forever. The story of Israel is a story of God keeping his promises. He will still keep his promises to the people of Israel because his faithful love endures forever. It does for them and it does for us as well. His promise to you as a Christian includes a heavenly inheritance. 
priceless and unspoiled by thieves or economic downturns or anything like that. It's more than a monthly paycheck. It is an eternal kingdom that you are included in. One of blessing and glory and reward. And today we have a chance to add to that inheritance as we serve God and glorify him through our lives and our worship. As the Israelites were invited to go into their inheritance and then cultivate the land of Canaan, we are invited to join the Lord in his work and receive a rich future reward for what we've done once the master returns. From conquest, the psalm now turns to God's love in the midst of present crisis. Verse 23, he remembered us in our humiliation. His faithful love endures forever and rescued us from our foes. His faithful love endures forever. The song is talked in cosmological terms and historical terms, but here it becomes personal. Our and us, our hurts, our struggles, our difficulties. All that God has done and all that he is capable of still applies to you and me. His love empowers us to overcome temptation. His love empowers us to be of good cheer, even in the face of humiliation of one kind or another. His love still overcomes. His love still makes a way, still works its generosity towards God's people all over the earth. Because God is still a redeemer. He's still a rescuer wasn't just true at the beginning in the Garden of Eden or just true in the Exodus or just true in the book of Acts. It's true today. Verse 25, he gives food to every creature. His faithful love endures forever. In theology, there's something known as common grace, meaning that God, because he's so compassionate, allows the rain to fall on the wicked and the good. That's common grace. The sun doesn't only shine uh, on, on Christians and not on unbelievers. Everyone here this morning, whether you belong to Christ or not, is given the perpetual gift of breath and a beating heart. Now that is lavish generosity. If you are not a Christian, the Bible explains that you are at war with God. And that you are his adversary. And that you are rejecting that rich gift that he has offered so freely. And yet, even though you're enemies with God, he still allows your heart to beat something like 100,000 times a day. He still allows you to take breath in. It's his breath in our lungs we sing sometimes, and that's true. We live because of God's common, gracious compassion, and we should be thankful for that. But are you a member of God's family? Only through faith in Jesus Christ can a person find refuge and forgiveness and salvation and eternal life. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one goes to the Father but through Him. You may enjoy God's common grace today, but it will all be a waste if you're not born again. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. It is that simple. It's not always easy to live the Christian life, but it is that simple to be brought into the kingdom of God. God has love for you more than you could possibly know. And so if you're not a Christian here today, don't refuse it. Not for one day more, one hour more. Receive what the Lord has offered to you. The song closes in verse 26. Give thanks to the God of heaven. His faithful love endures forever. Having brought us through thousands of years of history and into our own present experience, the song ends as it began, calling us to praise and worship and thankfulness for God's unfailing love. In this closing verse, we're reminded that there is an eternal future waiting for us. Heaven is just as real as earth. In fact, those 
who will spend eternity there will be more alive, more whole, more complete, more overjoyed than any of us has ever experienced in this life on the earth. You know, at award shows, sometimes the acceptance speeches, you can tell, are full of mechanical sort of thank yous to various production companies and staff. They get up, they do their thank yous, and then they leave. That's probably the average acceptance speech, right? But sometimes people are really surprised. And you see those winners that are overcome with excitement and emotion at what's just happened and what they've just received. They talk about feeling unworthy and so lucky to lay hold to such an honor. They're overflowing with just exuberance and excitement. Listen, maybe you're not facing some sort of great foe or adversary or fear today. Then imagine yourself as one of those award winners. Think of the incredible gifts God has given, the lavish generosity he has poured out on you. Consider the powerful, compassionate, caring love of God and allow your heart to overflow with that kind of thankful praise. Wow, Lord, you did that for me? You keep the moon where it is so that I can live a life and experience your love, be used by you to continue to change this world. It's true. That's what the Bible declares. Maybe you're not in a time of wonder or you don't have the luxury of being able to think through those things right now because you're beset by trials or struggles or health problems. I don't know. Maybe you find yourself more in a time of humiliation like it talks about in the song. Maybe you're afraid of what's going to happen in your life or in our nation in the coming days. Maybe you feel like you're caught between the Egyptian army and the Red Sea, seeing no way out of some sort of trouble that you're in. What should you do? Well, we know what to do. But I was reminded of that iconic scene in How the Grinch Stole Christmas. The Who's down in Whoville wake one morning, what do they find? Their homes ransacked and vandalized. Everything they had had been taken. All that they had been looking forward to, all of their hope, right, had been robbed from them. And what happens? Well, the Who's come together and they sing. They sing a little song. A somewhat repetitive song, to be sure. But what happened? The song was so profound that it melted the heart of their sworn enemy. And their community was changed. Now, obviously, that is a very trite comparison to make. But now, understanding just on the emotional level, even the world out there says, man, look at what could happen when people realize that there's something more than just this material life in front of us. And let's come together to sing. Now... Knowing what we know about God and about eternity, about what the Lord has done for us and wants to do for this world. Now let's take that basic human understanding and transfer it in the light of Psalm 136 and look at how much more is intended by this psalm. Whether you find yourself standing in awe of the wonder of God's majesty or just wondering how you're going to make it through today, the same truth rings out. His faithful love endures forever. And we should get to singing. Because that refrain, that promise, isn't a vain repetition. No, it's more like the powerful waves that lap on the shore hour after hour, day after day. People love the sound of the ocean, right? If you download one of those like sleep apps or relaxation apps, it's always one of the options. Waves, right? It's the most repetitive thing in all of the world. The waves crashing on the shore. And yet on some level we find... It to be, most people find it to be soothing and comforting. That, that sound and that constant repetition. It's a sound of strength and a sound of the washing over, right? We all understand that. And this refrain, 
God's faithful love endures forever. It can be like the waves on the shore of our life as we just sit there and consider what God is capable of, his strength, his constancy, his compassion, his care for you. That soothing sound of God's love. From the beginning and to the end of all things, God's love is faithful toward you. And as we sing his praises, our hearts are fortified. Our perspective is calibrated and a testimony of his life-saving grace goes out to the world around us. This psalm in Jewish tradition was known as the Great Hallel. It's been also called the psalm that never ends. We can keep singing it in our hearts and in our gatherings from now through eternity because God's love really does never end. It is faithful forever and ever. And so let's give thanks and get to singing. Amen.